Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in History, a channel of the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Julia Gossard. Chocolate. Nothing is more irresistible for a decadent treat or a rich drink to warm you on a cold winter's evening. In 18th century Venezuela, cacao became a life source for the colony. Neglected by the Spanish fleet system, Venezuelan colonists struggled to obtain European foods and goods. But they found a solution in trading the highly coveted luxury good, cacao, for the necessities of life with contrabandists from the Dutch, English, and French Caribbean. Establishing an intricate contraband network, Venezuelans normalized their subversions to imperial law. Today, we're pleased to welcome Jesse Cromwell to discuss his new book, The Smuggler's World, Illicit Trade in Atlantic Communities in 18th Century Venezuela, published in 2018 by the Omohundro Institute of Early American History and Culture and the University of North Carolina Press. This incredibly well-researched and beautifully written book explores how smuggling in the Spanish Atlantic became more than an economic transaction or imperial worry. Persistent local need elevated smuggling to a communal ethos, and Venezuelans defended their commercial autonomy through passive measures as well as violent protests when the Spanish state enacted the Bourbon reforms in the 18th century. Exchanges over smuggling between the Spanish Empire and its colonial subjects formed a key part of empire making and maintenance in the 18th century. Thank you so much for being with us today, Jesse. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me, Julia. Of course. I'm really excited to discuss your book today, but before I get there, I want to give our listeners a bit of a formal introduction to you. Dr. Jesse Cromwell is Associate Professor of Colonial Latin American History at the University of Mississippi. His research focuses on imperial and Atlantic histories of Spanish colonialism in the 18th century Circum-Caribbean, with a special emphasis on how the Bourbon reforms affected the trans-imperial interactions, commerce, and mobility of a host of populations in the region. His work has been published in the Americas, History Compass, and the Latin American Research Review. He has received support from numerous organizations, including the Huntington Library, the John Carter Brown Library, the Spanish Ministry of Culture, and the Institute for Historical Studies. Jesse teaches courses on Latin American, Caribbean, and Atlantic history, as well as the history of piracy and commodities. 
So let's delve right into the smuggler's world. Jesse, in the first 10 pages of The Smuggler World, I was really hankering for some old-fashioned hot chocolate, that rich, bitter type that you can find in Central and South America and parts of Europe. The use of chocolate as an entry point for your readers is a genius one, one that really got me hooked. But it also demonstrates how and why Venezuela was central to smuggling with the demand for this type of commodity. Given that, would you define your work as a type of commodity history? Well, first off, let me just say, <laughs> these are, you know, this is one of these funny things about a book, right? Um, and, and I have to, like, thank my, my editor, Nadine Zimmerly, because um, she suggested this idea of, here is this piece of your book that doesn't fit anywhere else, but I think it might fit here, right? And so it ended up becoming this, this, this prologue at the beginning of the book. Um, it, you know, was sort of, leftovers from a seminar paper that was roundly and rightly kind of pilloried the first time I, I, I presented it. So, you know, these are the sorts of things that happen. It's with genius, the though, the way that it's done um, there. It really gets you <laughs> wanting to read the book. <laughs> yeah, I, I hope it's not a no. bait and switch. But anyway, um, so, so, yeah, I mean, to answer your question, this is a type of a commodity history, right? Even though it's, I don't think it's salt or cod or, you know, oceans of wine or, you know, uh, Molly Warsh's American Baroque, right? Um, the, the, the commodity in this case isn't the central sort of interlocutor between people and places, um, although, it, you know, I guess it could be at times, but um, that's that's not really the story I'm telling, right? But Chocolate has some unique properties that inform this story. It, it grew especially well in coastal lowlands in Venezuela, uh, and, and it was and, and still is, Venezuelan cacao is, is still prized as sort of probably the best pure raw chocolate in the world. Um, and, and, you know, the documents that I, that I would read in, you know, of 18, from the 18th century would have that, um, that, that sense about them, right? Would talk over and over again about chocolates, uh, Venezuelan chocolates value and, and, and preference, right? Um, it was a bit, it was a product that was storable and tradable and therefore smugglable, right? Um. It's 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 easier to get a, a hold full of chocolate together than a hold full of silver, um, and the, the, it was a beverage and and only a beverage at this time, right? Of of taste and connoisseurship, particularly in the 18th century and in an Atlantic context, sort of like you know, coffee or tea. Um, it was imbibed by the wealthy and people of humble means as well. Um, and, and you, you see all of these, um, all these stories in, in, in documents and in, and in things other people have even written about, about, you know, how taken, especially, uh, people in the Spanish Atlantic world were with chocolate, right. To the point where there are back and forth heated debates about whether chocolate violates the ecclesiastical fast and, and things like that, right? right. Or, or what are its medicinal properties and, and, and this sort of stuff, right? So here is this beverage of um, real conviviality, right? That's mm -hmm. peaking uh, at a time of salons in, in, in Europe, right? And um, 
I really thought when I was writing this introduction, well, how interesting would it be to kind of compare that sense of the beverage, right, to what I had been spending most of my research time looking over, which was sort of what the trading of this product looked like on the ground in, in, in Venezuela, right? And Venezuela at this time is this, you know, backwater that no one in the Spanish empire had really been able to find a way to make a profit from, mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and here it is the Mecca of this emerging raw material, right? Um, so it's, you know, it, it, it pushes um, the colony very much into the bourbon imperial eye, right? As, as sort of, you know, here is, you know, one of the means of, of, of imperial reform is here is a way we can take a colony that, that hasn't done a lot for us, you know, uh, uh, encourage its cash crop production, create a new stream of revenue and sort of regularize and control uh, the, 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 the trade in that, in that commodity. So to that extent, you know, it's a, it's a commodity history. Yeah, it's a commodity history. It's, it's sort of the commodity of the Atlantic world and it lets you examine so many other things around it. So it's not like you said, a commodity, a history of salt or history of wine, but it allows you to go into these different areas of research. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And given that the smuggler's world sits at all of these different intersections of so many of the related historiographies, I mean, colonial Latin America, economic history, illicit trade, imperial policy, and that's just a few off the top of my head there, what do you see as the book's most central contribution then to Atlantic history? Well, I think most importantly, I wanted to think of smuggling and informal economies is not somehow aberrational or niche um, to the, the story of the Atlantic world, but rather central to how people provisioned themselves, thought about community and moral structures, and contemplated and wrestled with empires. Um, I also I think what, what I'm trying to do with the book as well is, is to sort of go beyond truisms about, oh, the Atlantic world was all connected, right? And to think more about um, who was connecting it and how. Um, and, and then, I don't know, the, 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 the kind of motif running underneath in the book because uh, so much of this book is about smugglers and the people who trade with them and, and, and from the perspective of, of prize courts, right, um, to, to reveal how early modern people thought about criminality, right? What, are the, uh, what were the acceptable limits of things we'd call smuggling or corruption or theft or violence, right? When is it um, sort of in aid of a community? When is it antithetical to what that community believes, right? It's it sort of both within the context of the law, but also separate from it. Right. And that makes a lot of sense. Given this, this kind of history of criminality and the ways in which people negotiated this, um, you mentioned early on in the book that casual observers to early modern history will hear the word smuggling and associate it heavily with pirates. I mean, after all, one of the kind of most ubiquitous images that somebody has of early modern Atlantic would be that of a pirate. Um, 
but you're keen to explain the difference between smugglers and pirates. Do you think you could talk a little bit more about that, maybe tying that to the issue of criminality during this period? This this idea about I'm the pirate historian, right, has been the background noise of my work since since graduate school, like right? A great and, hook, though, um, that you're the pirate historian. <laughs> well, and and I hesitate with that, right? But I, I remember um, inviting a, a one of my best friends from uh, from uh, when I was in Austin, Texas, right, to to come to my my dissertation defense, and he sat at my dissertation defense for you know a couple hours, and then said. Jesse, you you almost didn't talk about pirates at all. I'm really <laughs> disappointed, right? Um, you know, so I'm 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 fascinated by pirates as much as anyone else. But uh, you know, obviously, this book is not strictly speaking a history of piracy, and I'm not strictly speaking a historian of piracy. There are there are people that do uh, that do that work and, and do it really well. Um, pirates are a group and a story that. Nonetheless, the general public can can easily grasp onto and get behind, um, and and you know pirates as a group are what many even scholars uninitiated to the history of the maritime Atlantic think of when I say oh I'm doing sort of maritime Caribbean history right or maritime Atlantic mm-hmm. history um, so it you know it it has been a very convenient way in for me. But to, to, to get back to your, your question, it's interesting because pirates, despite all of this fame, commanded such a comparatively small share of the early modern global economy when, when, when compared to smugglers. Um, mm-hmm. Part of the, the, the confusion, I think, too, between the two groups and why I had to spend a few pages kind of breaking them down is um, this is a continuum, right? Both sort right. of occupationally and jurisdictionally, right? Um, uh, a maritime worker in you know, his or in some cases her lifetime might be a pirate, a smuggler, a merchant, a sailor, a uh, slaver, right? Um, you know, the, these are these were often fluid designations, um, you know, in someone's life course, but also in the empire they found themselves in. Um, smugglers come from a broader, uh, as far as the the distinctions I would I would make, right? Smugglers come generally from a broader social class spectrum, right? Uh, they. Um, they want to operate involving evasion or collusion more often than than piracy, right? I mean that, that that's a an element of piracy, but piracy because it more explicitly involves theft, also ex- more explicitly involves force or the threat of force. Right. right, and you're very clear that these people in Venezuela themselves were not necessarily pirates; they were trying to work within the system. Yeah, yeah, and and you know I. That isn't to say, right? I think the Spanish legal designations, for example, of Dutch merchants who were smuggling on the Spanish coast, right, would oftentimes, you know, sort of on, on one page say contrabandista, right, contrabandist, and on the, the, the next page, right, call them a pirata, right, um, a pirate, right, that 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 uh, for for bureaucrats, the distinction is not often made or is often forgotten, right? But um, yeah, I, I, I think 
to 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 think of uh, these people as pirates is a mistake, even though you know they are sometimes involved in in violent actions in their own defense or in the process of trading, right? Even in the process of, you know, there's this this term that gets bandied about, like comercio forzado, right? Forced trade, mm-hmm. right? And and this idea that you know um, that 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 Spanish subjects often make this point that yeah these these foreigners came here and they made us buy their goods at gunpoint and they left some other things in return right and you know <laughs> we can laugh about this and and, and say yeah that we we could probably read between the lines and 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 note the uh, the the falsity of these claims right but um, you know there there are other examples of of violence and people who are sort of caught in the crossfire of violence between smugglers and and. Coast Guard officials and things like that that do, you know, uh, make the point that that, that this is a, an, an unpredictable and illicit world where, uh, you know, violence is often very much a part of it. Definitely. I mean, I think that that's a, such a key part of this. Jesse, I think that this conversation about the legalities of smuggling versus piracy um, you know, it really shows that smuggling allowed for great trans-imperial connections during the 17th and 18th centuries across the Atlantic. When you discovered all of these records of foreign smugglers, the Dutch, French, Portuguese, etc., what did it teach you about the interconnectedness of the Atlantic world? That's a great question. Um, I think what I was expecting to find were these documents that would talk about the way that people in different empires interacted and that it would be sort of full of intrigue and secrecy and diplomacy and, 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 and all of, you know, sort of statecraft. Um, But I think what, what I was struck by and what really surprised me was that at least in 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 my little corner of of the Atlantic world here, interconnectedness was a lot more normal and humble, if I could use that word, than I'd have guessed. Uh, the types of ships that that smugglers were using were oftentimes, um, you know, down to the level of you know they would call them like. Canoes, right? Like canoes, right? Going, going, uh, sixty miles between Dutch Curacao and and Venezuela. Um, the the traders were were much more humble than I would have guessed. That you know, it really kind of reinforces something that I remember reading in in Ernesto Bassi's excellent book about. The Atlantic world or Atlantic world commerce was much more of a peddler's commerce than a wholesaler's commerce, right? Um, I'm, I'm sort of paraphrasing him here, but 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 that that sense of these are not diamonds and 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 rupees and silver by and large that's being exchanged. We're we're talking about incredibly humble, cheap goods uh you know coarse cloth and and you know uh simple foodstuffs and liquor and things of that nature right and and so um you know i was i was struck by that um i was struck by how much 
of the map many subjects had in their head, right? As far as that, that people that I thought were sort of coastal dwellers could think about what was going on in Curacao and Barbados and Martinique and, 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 you know, islands where they, they might not even set foot. Um, and how much more they sometimes knew about commercial conditions than the state did. The, I think that that's a part that that is particularly interesting to me. So for our listeners, Jesse and I went to the same doctoral program at the University of Texas, and I think that we had several advisors, uh, you know, Jorge Canizares Esquera, Ann Twynham, Julie Hardwick, that all really made us look very carefully at the normal everyday people of these negotiations, and that they were incredibly savvy, that they knew about the interconnectedness of the world in a way that historians hadn't recognized previously. And I think you do that really well in your book here. Thank you. Um, you know, I, I, I try, but, you know, I think um, the, that aspect, or I had a conversation with, with a, a colleague in, in my department at some point, and he said, oh, you know, who would you want to be from your research if you could be someone, right? And I started breaking down for him this, this guy who was essentially a supercargo whose job was to go, you know, from island to island, port to port, and kind of gauge what people wanted and needed in, in terms of goods and to kind of keep that math in his head for a, a, a larger merchant. And, um, you know, and he said, "Oh, that sounds that sounds really boring. That just sounds like a bean counter." But it's a it's a bean counter who's all judging, you know, um, political conditions. It's a bean counter who understands uh, sort of the, the 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 what's what's scarce for people and why. It's a bean counter that knows something about um, the the both the economics and the social structure of the plantation system. Um, you know, the, the, it, one of the best parts about working on smuggling is how much it connects to all of these sort of larger, larger themes in, in, in the Atlantic. Absolutely. And I think that that's very apparent. I, f I find that funny. I'd, I'd like to be a bean counter. Well, that would probably have been a very interesting position to have had there. We couldn't all be kings and queens and you know, big time pirates and everything. So um, I, I thinking generally about this idea of smuggling, your chapter contrabandists or cargo is one of the most innovative of the book. And I think shows your breadth of being able to cover Atlantic history, economic history, as well as the history of slavery. And it really highlights the ways in which Afro-Caribbean sailors and slaves navigated or were part of the contraband trade. And I'm just wondering if you could discuss some of these experiences for our listeners. I think this is definitely a chapter many people will be interested in reading. Um, this was the, the first chapter I wrote when I was writing the dissertation. And it, it sort of burst out of me because it was the first place where I really felt like I had something to say, which is, and it, th that's a little strange because I don't necessarily consider myself a historian of, of uh, slavery or the slave trade. Um, but I, I, I said to myself, well, 
you know, there, there've been a couple of, of, of articles and things about, um, about people of color or enslaved people who work on ships or who trade or, uh, you know, there's even Linda Rupert's work that's, that's excellent about, uh, uh, Afro-Caribbean contrabandists. Um, but I, I started thinking um, the contradiction of people who could be cargo and contrabandists, as the, the chapter was titled, how mind-boggling that, that, that is to us, but how it fits so much with the logic of early modern commerce. Um, you know, uh, that, that moments of smuggling, but also the sort of seizure of goods or the, the, the enforcement of um, early modern commercial law open places where these distinctions kind of merge together. Um, so what I found out was smuggling could be a path into slavery for many, and, and others have, have worked on this pretty extensively. I mean, Greg, Greg O'Malley's book is is very much there. There there's several chapters there about illicit illicit slave trading between ports in the Caribbean. Um, it could be a, a task, right? Smuggling could be a task, just like any other for enslaved people. It could be an occupation um, or a path to autonomy for both the enslaved and for free people of color. And it could be a means of escape for runaways. And, you know, the, the, that chapter opens with a, a, an enslaved person or a formerly enslaved person named Juan Pedro Antonio in 1763, um, who is captured um, on a, on a French ship from Martinique that's, that's illicitly trading in Venezuela. And he, he, um, you know, is forced to, to, to do time on, on sort of a work gang. And after he finishes that, he's, he's allowed to, to live as a, as a free man in, in, in Venezuela. And his, his master, a guy by the name of, in the documents anyway, by the name of Juan Antonio Marion, um, petitions from Martinique to Caracas uh, to, to bring this guy back. He says, that's my slave. And, and you know, this, this, this guy used this voyage as a way to run away. And, and there's this whole back and forth in the, in the, in the documents about, um, you know, whether he's free or enslaved. And, and he, he claims that he's, that, that he's free. And, you know, the, 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 the judge eventually gives him the option of, finding a buyer for himself, right? Essentially selling himself back into slavery so that he can stay in Venezuela and, and not be subject to this, this, uh, owner, this slave owner that he is, that he is, you know, run away from, um, you know, and I, I don't have time to go into all the ins and outs, right. But this is, these are the sorts of, um, gray areas that I found fascinating, right. Or, or, you know, slaves that are enslaved people that are entrusted with taking the, the, the cacao and goods of five or 10 slaveholders from a plantation region, uh, down river to market 
making trades and coming back with with uh, you know finished products. Um, some of this is is slaveholders wanting to ev evade you know potential capture, potential punishment themselves. But but uh, there's there's a level of sort of trust there. Um, and I think we smuggling allows us to examine a whole range of occupational identities and also to examine sort of jurisdictional identities. Um, what happens to, to foreign Afro-Caribbean contrabandists, both free and enslaved, when, um, when they enter into a different legal system and are caught and that whole knowledge of whether they're free or enslaved is totally thrown up in the air right um and 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 who can who can vouch for them and who would say this person is a free man and and what what sort of justifications hold sway Yeah, and, and what you're doing there is you're wading through all of this different gray area that people constantly had to navigate for themselves to know what side of the law, what side of society they're sitting on there. And that's one of the cool things about history is that it does allow us to not just look at the world through you know, very stark terms, but to understand the nuance and the complications of the ways in which people identified and had to exist within the world. And your book really demonstrates that for 18th century Venezuela. Yes, it's a colony of the crown, but there were many practices that the crown would not have necessarily agreed with. Yes, it was a place where the slaves were, but slavery meant something very different and there was different negotiations within that. So I think that that's a really cool aspect of your book there. Um, I think one of the things that you were talking about extensively here is sources and the ways in which these sources provided a lot of information to you. And you really describe your methodology very nicely in this book. And I would encourage the graduate students or the first-time authors who are listening to this to go read the methodology section. It was really enlightening for me to see somebody be so forthright about their methodology. Um, since the practice you're looking at was more or less supposed to be secret, you had challenges with your sources. I love the section in chapter one on page 25 where you say, quote, the archival sources documenting illicit commerce when properly utilized allow for multi-perspective analysis uncommon in colonial history. I was wondering if you could help us understand how your methodology and those sources are unusual in this regard and how you navigated that. The the records I primarily used, which sort of the bedrock source of of, of this book, um, is is a number of of prize court records. Prize courts are are people that adjudicate um, seized shipping and determine whether or not it's contraband and uh, whether or not the goods should be. Um, repossessed and 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 auctioned and whether or not uh, contrabandists or merchants should be should be punished and and how um, these prize court records as you're pointing out only show who got caught and what i noticed and and there are a few 
books that are they're notable exceptions. But what I noticed from the majority of the historiography in Latin American history, Caribbean history, uh, Atlantic history, was that except for a handful of studies, um, the historiography either omitted smuggling or sort of talked about it obliquely, but said, oh, we can't really know anything about that. Or um, because we can only know who got caught, tried to do this quantification exercise, right? Well, if, if this many people got caught and we figure it's this much of the shipping, then, you know, smuggling might have been this this percentage of the economy. And and that's that's valuable too. And I'm not trying to, to, to knock, you know, quants everywhere, right? But I, I wanted to study it as an occupational practice. And then later I saw this as a crossroads between so many issues of empire, slavery, material culture, rebellion, moral economy, et cetera. Um, so smuggling, as I dug in, seemed to be everywhere in the records, but also distorted. As I said, only those who got caught. Um, that the, the records tended to be from a very statist perspective. Smugglers wanted to be anonymous. They never would have sort of written a tract about, or, or almost none of them did write a tract about, oh, this is why I'm a smuggler and how I smuggle and all these sorts of things. Um, and, and oftentimes the ones who get caught don't see <laughs> the ego documents. Of exactly. Right. Not necessarily and oftentimes there. <laughs> the, the, the smugglers who got caught didn't see themselves as criminals or smugglers at all. Um, so there were lots of misperceptions on the part of the state as far as, um, you know, what these people were doing or, uh, you know, officials that quite clearly were trying to cover their own tracks because they were complicit in, in illicit trade. And from the perspective of uh, contrabandists, there's lots of accumulated informal knowledge about how to lie, how to formulaically confess, how to keep contacts or the extent to which someone was a habitual um, illicit trader, how to keep those, those things hidden. Um, so I found I had to do a lot of reading between the lines and it just took a certain amount of reading the documents. And this is why I would, you know, counsel any graduate student to, to, to not just take those at an archive, but also spend a little bit of time reading. Uh, you know, it just took a certain amount of reading documents to mm -hmm. start understanding their, their internal logic. Um, I found the, the archival material to be split, split between imperial and colonial concerns, right? So what, what made its way to Spain was, was stuff that would concern the crown or the council of the Indies or these really important bodies about the economics of the trade, about, you know, potential issues of unrest amongst populace, um, you know, some, some very important officials who get uh, prosecuted for, for, um, contraband trade, these sorts of things, or, or their complicity uh, within it. But what what stayed in the colonial archive, what stayed in the Archivo General de la Nación in, in Caracas, Venezuela, were, were, you know, really everyday documents down to people who were smuggling or buying tiny quantities of smuggled goods, right? So you had, I, I had both these kind of, this is what matters to the state, right. and this is kind of what's happening, you know, way down on the ground. Um, so 
you know, I, I, I ended up with a bunch of documents that are, that are wonderful in the sense that they allow, they, and the reason I have that statement that you quoted in the book is, um, it's not just someone is, is, is caught and judged and prosecuted. They allow the, 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 the traders to talk, right? And oftentimes these folks will tell you about itineraries and um, what they were doing and who they were interacting with and the places that, 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 that they traded and what they traded and, and right. all this sorts of stuff. So you can build um, this, this really rich picture of 18th century commercial life, right? But it's, it's, filtered, it's filtered through the state. And I, I would get yeah. these questions at, at conferences or symposiums or things saying, you know, aren't you just seeing these people like the state did? Why do you even use the word smuggler? They wouldn't have thought of themselves as smugglers. And, and they're right to an extent, right? But I, I have these documents because the state thought of them. We can, I can study these people because the state thought of them that way. Um, and, and that, that tension between sort of an Atlantic fluidity where, you know, people could smuggle and then trade legally and, you know, hop between empires and hop between islands and that tension between that Atlantic fluidity and imperial and jurisdictional rigidity, right? Where, where empires did matter and, and people were caught and people were judged smugglers and the human consequences of that could be uh, um, uh, really uh, destructive, right? Um, that tension is at the heart of my methodology. Jesse, are you there? Did we lose you? Okay. It sounded like it, it just cut off really abruptly. Um, but I think we'll be able to fix that. Okay, we're going to cut back in here. I think that that methodology that you're talking about is sort of the perennial issue when you want to tell a bottom-up history. You are limited in many ways by the sources available to you. And what you've done is you've been able to take the imperial or the state documents and find voices and experiences within them that I think is is a really creative way that we've had to get at this bottom-up history for the past generation of doing this and something that I'm sure other people are struggling with how to do in many ways. Yeah, certainly. And, and I think anyone, I mean, historians always have their questions that go unanswered when they're done with their studies, but especially with these documents of illicit practice, I have so many questions that I still don't have an answer to or that I took a, a stab at but couldn't um, that, that couldn't quite answer as far as sort of what makes everyday people want to um, want to buy uh, small amounts of illicit goods despite the risks. And, you know I sort of talk about some some cultural understandings of that and and you know that that European goods do mean a lot to identity and things like that, right? But I can't, nobody really asked these people, why do you want to own you know, this or that cloth from Holland, right? Um, and, and you know, also, I, I just started to sort of get a sense of a few, what I call smuggling rings or kind of commercial networks. But, oh boy, there's there's so much that I wanted to know about who knew who and and how deep some of these contacts go and right. I mean, you, you, <laughs> it's like you would, you would really like to see the, the, the flow chart <laughs> on, on, on some of these, 
um, really, really intricate uh, uh, smuggling. Yeah. And that's and that's kind of the the issue we all have to deal with is the unanswered questions that we will never have answered because the documents in our in our evidence just doesn't lead you to answer those things. And Precisely. I think that that's one of the most interesting and frustrating parts of of what we do. Um, Given work, work for future, work for future people. Yes, exactly. Right? <laughs> yeah, leave leave all of your your decision making processes somewhere so that future generations will know. Um, given sort of this discussion of methodology, uh, I you know I think that this section lends itself, as I said, very well to graduate students as well as to first time authors. So I wondered what your advice is to graduate students in Atlantic history at this moment in time. What are some kind of key takeaways that you'd like to tell them? Mm. Um, that, that you'll wear multiple hats, right? I mean, I, I think of myself as a Latin Americanist, a Caribbeanist and an Atlanticist, but though you wear multiple hats and, and you should keep sort of your, your membership in, in all of these or the, your intellectual <laughs> membership in all of these current, um, Emphasize Which is the important one that, for the job market, by the well, way. Well, I was about to bet that for I was going, emphasize the one that can get you uh, the, 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 the most job interviews, right? For me, it was it really was uh, that that regionality still matters, despite right. me me wondering or thinking that maybe it didn't, right? I mean, 90% of my, of, of when I was on the market, 90% of the jobs were in Latin American history, right? There there weren't that many Atlanticist jobs, right? Um, but But beyond the kind of, brass tacks, practical matters, right? I think sort of methodologically, I think Atlanticists or budding Atlanticists should not rush to shove everything into an Atlantic or transnational or global framework, right? Some things don't belong, right? And saying the word too much causes it to lose its meaning, um, Hmm. whatever that means. Um, Instead, I would encourage Atlanticists to try and map out how and why their historical subjects are connected across empires, cultures, oceans, etc. Um, I would I would say graduate students that are working in Atlantic history should pick a manageable topic that develops out of the archives and print material that they can get at, right? Rather than the other way around, right? To to to, to think about something that is, is gigantic and requires you to be on three continents and 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 all that stuff is is wonderful. But that may be that may be a second project. Right. That may be that may be your, your <laughs> you know, magnum a, opus in a way. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Um and and you know more to the more to the point if you have this wonderful idea for a project and then don't find what you're looking for right now, you start to wonder, well, is it in this other place or that other, you know, that other continent or things like that? And, you know, resources are finite. Um, I, I, I also, especially for Atlanticists, um, reading widely, I think is Mm -hmm. really important. I mean, I got, picked up by a press that traditionally focuses on early America, right? And and by early America, I'm talking about, you know, 13 colonies and 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 they're the Omohundro is certainly branching out and 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 very much uh thinking about vast early America now. But um you know that that press is still not on the radar for many of my Latin Americanist colleagues. Um 
and I think Atlanticists can can develop their own opportunities by 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 reading widely and thinking that way. And then finally, you know, Atlanticists should smile in the knowledge that they're uniquely positioned uh, to avoid, uh, you know, investment in sort of dogmatic, nationalistic, historical narratives, right? I mean, it's, it, it, you know, like that's that's one of the best things about uh, investigating history the way that we do is that, um, you know, we're not necessarily kind of straitjacketed into um, some of these, some of these long historiographical debates. Yeah, you can really complicate that narrative and oftentimes disregard ones that don't necessarily fit with what you're seeing and change perceptions. Precisely. Thinking about this reading widely and thinking of yourself as both a Latin Americanist as well as Atlanticist, how did that get you interested into 18th century Venezuela as a research topic? I I was interested in maritime and and Caribbean history um, well before graduate school. I grew up in in North Florida and, you know, spent my my teenage years playing around at the Castillo de San Marcos in St. Augustine and you know so that 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 interest went way back um when I when I began graduate school and was trying to kind of settle on topics I I read um a book by Lance Gran about smuggling in in New Granada and I at the same time I read a book by uh, Pablo Perez Mayana on um Spanish sailors in the Carrera de Indias, in, in uh, the Silver Fleets. And um, those books were really impactful for me for thinking about um, sort of how do, uh, how do common people interact in really large um, and sometimes fraught Atlantic systems. Um, I took this idea about maybe writing a work on contraband trade and, and questions of, of illicit economies to my advisor, Ann Twynham. And, you know, she said, try Venezuela. <laughs> and I said, oh, well, why or what, or, you know, why Venezuela? And, and she said, you know, everything was upside down there and the province was powerful and, and uh, by, by comparison to the empire and the records are good and, and they're all really well cataloged. <laughs> and, you know, so it's one of these things where, you know, she didn't force upon me a topic, but she had, you know, as, as, as many of us encounter, she had a, a, an, a, an encyclopedic archival knowledge um, that allowed her to keep me from reinventing a wheel and, and, and push me towards this colony. And I didn't know that I was going to necessarily write about it, but I did some, um, some searching of old archival guides and bibliographies and really confirmed that she was right, that this is, that, that, that Venezuela had, and has an incredibly rich and well-cataloged archive, right? The, the Archivo General de la Nación is, as far as, you know, in, in country, um, but also that Venezuelans had in the 60s and 70s um, used oil money uh, to send some of their best historians to Spain to catalog everything in Spain that pertained to Venezuela. So, uh, you know, by comparison to, to people who, who study, I don't know, 
and I don't want to I don't want to speak too authoritatively, but that study I don't know Argentina or Ecuador or something, right? I mean, the, the there there are you know twenty vol there 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 are a couple of twenty volume indexes on various parts of Venezuela and the the, the documents pertaining to them that are in you know the Archivo General de Indias, the the largest sort of document repository in in Spain about colonial Latin America. Um, so it was it was a real head start and a real way to focus work. Um, and then getting into it, I, I started to find this 18th century society, colonial society, to be intrinsically fascinating um, in, in that, you know, it, it kind of has these perfect conditions for illicit commerce, right? And by that, I don't mean to say that, you know, Venezuelans in the 18th century were somehow more criminal than anyone else or something like that. That's not the point, right? But to, to, to the, the political conditions as far as, you know, the rising of a, of a, of a cash crop, um, reform efforts coming from the Bourbon crown and the development of this, um, I, I detail it a lot in my book, but the development of this Caracas company, which is this sort of private monopoly company that, um, has kind of paramilitary arm for enforcement that is is tasked with, uh, um, you know, controlling and regulating the Venezuelan cacao trade. Uh, you know, I started thinking, wow, there are there are some real pieces here that are at play and in tension with one another that could make for a really really interesting study. Yeah. So I think one of your other pieces of advice to graduate students is definitely to follow advice of your advisor as well, given Antoinum's excellent suggestions there. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, Jesse, so much. It has been Absolutely. a pleasure to get to talk about your research, about the smugglers' world, and learn more about your perspective into the 18th century Atlantic world. Thank you for just so much for joining us today. Thank you. Um, for a special thank. Oh yes, absolutely. A special thank you also goes out to the Omohundro Institute of Early American History and Culture, as well as the University of North Carolina Press, for a review copy of the Smugglers' World. Head over to UNC's website to purchase a copy of this book. And finally, thank you to our listeners for joining us today at New Books and History, the channel of New Books Network. I'm Dr. Julia Gossard, wishing you happy reading.